Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. Mark chapter 3. We're going to pick up exactly where we left off last week. Last week, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the scribes. They're accusing him of how to observe the Sabbath. And that's really kind of where we pick right back up this morning. And so as we go through chapter 3, you're going to see different people and how they interact with Jesus. This morning, we're going to see four different groups that encounter Jesus and the alarming truth that proximity to Jesus doesn't always attribute to a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, just because these people come close to Jesus doesn't mean that they actually know Jesus. I mean, you, you know this to be true, right? Just because you know facts about someone and just because you're in the proximity of someone doesn't mean that you know that person on a personal level. Now, it's been several years back, but I, you know, I was raised a Braves fan. My mom, she, she lived in Atlanta, and my grandparents lived in Atlanta, and so I was raised watching the Braves, and so sure enough, I've kind of carried that on to my family. Like, if you're going to live in my house, you have to be a Braves fan, and so uh, my wife and I, early on in marriage, we decided to go to a game with another couple friend of ours, and so we got there, and we went early because it was meet and greet the players' day. I was so excited. I mean, these are my childhood heroes. And so uh, we're walking around the park and we're seeing all these different lines of different players. And we get to this one and his name was Javi Lopez. I don't know if you remember Javi Lopez, but he was a Braves catcher for, for several years. And as my wife would say, he's very attractive. He's a very attractive man. And so when she saw him, she left my side and ran towards him. Like with this whole mob of women, they were just running after Javi, you know, like, oh, and I don't know what it's like to have that happen. I've never, I've never had women just run at me like that. So uh, kudos to you, uh, Javi. But, you know, so she ran over there and there's a whole lot of people like gathered around this man. And I would venture to say that very few, if any, knew him on a personal level. I mean, they knew facts about him. They knew his statistics, maybe. They, they knew what he looked like. They, and they were in close proximity. But it doesn't mean that they knew him on a personal level. Proximity to Jesus doesn't always attribute to a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's exactly what Mark wants us to see. So my question for you this morning is, is not uh, how close am I to Jesus? It's how do I come to Jesus? So the question I want us to wrestle with today is not how close am I to Jesus? It's how do I come to Jesus? So as you sit there this morning, as you're sitting there on your couch or in your living room or in a different area of the house, or maybe you're at work or you're watching this later on, let me ask you, how are you coming to Jesus right now? Are you coming longing to be in his presence? Or are you just part of the crowd, just seeing what you can see? You see, John Mark, he wants us to know this, that the proximity to Jesus doesn't equate to a personal relationship with Jesus because John Mark is recording what Peter's talking about. And Peter's like, man, there were mobs of people coming to Jesus, but they didn't all follow Jesus. They didn't all know Jesus. So as we're about to read, many will come close to Jesus, but they come with a wrong intention, a wrong perception, and even a wrong affection. So as we jump into scripture, Mark chapter three, can I pray for us? Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word speaks to us, that it shows us who you are, 
that you reveal yourself to us, Lord, and we pray that our hearts would come to you today, that we would draw close, we would draw near with sincerity, with a pure heart. God, that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I want you to see is Jesus and the crippled. So let's read here together, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He's inviting him to come closer to him. Verse 4, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So here we go again. Jesus, he's here in the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand that comes up in front of him. And so Jesus says, come here. He's inviting him in. Just as we discussed last week with Jesus and the Pharisees, there's a sharp disagreement over how the Sabbath is to be observed. The religious have made the commands of God more about man's practice than God's presence. So let's get this straight. This is a, a day devoted to God. This is a day where they all stop, they all pause, they all rest, and they all are supposed to be focusing in on God's presence with them. And yet they've made it more about man's practice. I mean, they've maybe even set up a trap to see what Jesus is going to do. You see, anytime we make our faith about man's practice over God's presence, we move into a dangerous legalistic mindset. This is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. They've moved into a dangerous legalistic mindset where they think that the worship of God is more about man's practice than God's presence with his people. So this man this man is in need of a healing presence of Jesus. But these men believe that the healing presence of Jesus should come second to the practice of observing the Sabbath. I mean, they're saying this, this shouldn't happen. There shouldn't be anything happening here. You shouldn't be uh, breaking these laws. And so they've trapped Jesus here. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. The question I want you to wrestle with today is not how close am I to Jesus, but rather how do you come to Jesus? Because you've got the Pharisees and you've got this crippled man all in a close proximity to Jesus, but they're coming with very different reasons. They want two very different things from him. So how do you come to Jesus today? This is the question I want you to wrestle with. The Sabbath is about God. It's not about man. So as you're sitting there and as you're worshiping in your own, on your, in your own home or in your own workplace or, or wherever you're watching this, as you are worshiping and drawing close to God, is it more about his presence right now? Or is it more about your practice? What you think you should be doing? It, it, see, the Sabbath, it's about God calling us to come to him in our weakness. God's calling us towards him. It's about God calling us to come to him for rest. It's about God calling us to come to him in recognition of his presence. 
Is that what you're doing today? Are you coming to him? Are you drawing close because you know that you're weak? Are you coming to him because you know that there's sins in your life that you need forgiveness of? Are you coming to him because you're weary and you're, you're tired and you need rest? Are you coming to him because you recognize that his presence is the most essential thing in your life? You see, as we come close to God, as we celebrate today, it's not about man's keeping rules. It's not about regulations. It's not even about religious practices. It's about the presence of God. So you can see that there's no better way to honor the Sabbath than what Jesus is actually doing. He's inviting this man who is weak. He's inviting this man who needs rest. He's inviting this man into the very presence of God. I love what Paul Tripp says. Paul Tripp says it this way. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Legalism is not first a matter of theology. Legalism is not first a matter of biblical interpretation. Legalism is first a condition of the heart. It's rooted in self-righteousness. It's rooted in pride. And that pride and self-righteousness always leads to the condemnation of others. Get this part. Get this part. Legalism would rather celebrate principle than meet the needs of people. When our relationship with God is more concerned about celebrating the principles, how we practice, than it is about meeting the needs of people, we're off course. We've missed the point of being with Jesus. We've missed the point of his presence in our life. Jesus has come to call people into himself. Legalism in its pride of self-righteousness lacks mercy. It lacks grace and it lacks compassion. If your relationship with Jesus lacks mercy towards others, lacks grace towards others, and lacks compassion towards others, then you might have shifted over into a more of a legalistic mindset. You see, here's, here's what we know. We can all become so fixated on the principles and practices of our religious self-righteousness, our, our do's and don'ts, and we can ignore people in need of Jesus. That's, that's what's plaguing the church. We can become so fixated on our principles and practices that we neglect to see the people who are in desperate need of the presence of Jesus. You see, we can ignore the good. The good, the need of seeing people come to Jesus because we are too busy following the principles of our religion. Verse 4, And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? So Jesus is asking them, well, what, what do you think God desires? Hosea 6.6 6 says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So the, the prophet, he's saying this, and then Jesus actually repeats this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. So Jesus says this, But go and learn what, it, what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is saying, look, you want to know what's really, really important. It's sinners coming to Jesus. I'm calling them to me. Go understand what's most important right now. It's not principles and practices. It's the presence of God. God's deepest desire is for people to not just come close, but come drawing near to the presence of him. That, that those who are crippled would come and find healing. Jesus wants all of us crippled by sin to come to him and find healing. 
He wants us who are sick to draw near. It says there in verse 5, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So Jesus has really made these, these individuals mad. I mean, they're really upset. They're looking for a way to destroy him. But Jesus has just asked them, well, what's lawful? What should you do, good or bad? And Jesus, seeing their heart, says that he is grieved, grieved at their hardness of heart. We can't miss this. Before we stand too far away from the Pharisees, let's admit that this is all in all of us. Let's admit that it's easier to look down on a brother and sister in Christ who doesn't seem to be as far along as we are than it is to look at them in their struggle with sin, with compassion and grace. And that grieves Jesus. It grieves Jesus because Jesus came to call sinners to himself. He came to heal those who were lame, to heal those who were blind, both physically and spiritually. He came that those who are crippled by sin in their life would find his presence healing. As we think about these words of Jesus, let's move into a prayer prompt. Let's move into a time where we respond to God in prayer. So before we move any further through this chapter, let's, let's stop and let's ask these questions and let's pray through this. Do you have a crippling sin that ails you? Is there something going on in your life that, that you know has crippled you that you just can't get past? Would you come to Jesus right now asking for healing? I mean, you can be right there on your couch. You could, you could bow right there in, in your living room. You could get on your hands and your knees and you could call out to Jesus and say, I'm coming to you and I'm desperate for your healing touch because this sin is crippling my life. How do you come to Jesus today? Let me ask you, do you have a legalistic hard heart towards others? Have you begun to compare yourself to others? Do you often focus on the principles and the practices of faith over the presence of Jesus? Have you become so fixated on what you have to do rather than on what God has done? I want us to read Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three, 23. And let's use this as a guide into our prayer. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All of your, all the offspring of Israel, stand in awe of him. In your living room, this morning, right now, I plead with you, come to Jesus. Stand in awe of him and what he has done. Will you take a moment and pray for God to soften your heart towards others and open your heart towards him? Will you pray? Second thing is this, Jesus and the crowds. And so let's gonna, we're going to keep reading Mark chapter 3, picking up verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. 
from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from, the, uh, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So people are, are getting in close proximity again to Jesus. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So here we have all these crowds. They're coming to Jesus. These crowds came to Jesus near the Sea of Galilee from distant places. They're all getting word of what's happening. They're all hearing about how he's performing all these miracles and how he's healing people. And and Jesus wants people to come to him, but there's so many that he has to actually get into a boat so that they don't crush him. But it seems that the crowds were attracted to Jesus more because of his miraculous works than because of his message. They just wanted something from him. They didn't want to be with him. You see, if you come to Jesus for what he can do for you, instead of for who he is, you will not come to him for very long. If you come to Jesus to just get something out of him, you'll find yourself drifting away. I mean, you, you know this. If you come to Jesus simply for an eternal security, then once you've prayed the prayer, you will stop coming because you feel that you have received all that you need. I mean, we see this all the time. People, they say the sinner's prayer. They, they repeat after me. They, they do all the things they're supposed to do. They, they receive salvation, and then they fall away, maybe because they came just to get what they could get from God. And once they've got it, well, there's no really any reason to come to him anymore. Well, what about this? If you come to Jesus simply to get a quick fix, to get out of the trouble that you're in, to, to get favorable circumstances after being faced with sinful consequences, then once those desires are met or not met, you fall away again until the next need arises. We see this too all the time. People who, they they fall into sin, these consequences come up, the the circumstances of their life have made a drastic turn, whether, whether it's their fault or not, and they come to Jesus because they need Jesus to fix it. They need him to fix something. And after that fix is met, you see them again begin to drift away from the proximity and coming to Jesus. But if you come to Jesus for who he is, you will will continually come to him because he is your anchor in life. He is your foundation. He is your closest friend. He is your savior and Lord. He is your source of life. He is your daily bread and your indwelling power over sin. How do you come to Jesus? Now get this, Jesus is God in the flesh. I love how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. Jesus is the visible representation of God. These people, these crowds are coming to Jesus and they're getting to see God in the flesh 
And just because they're in proximity doesn't mean they get it. Some of them are missing it. They're missing the fact that God is in the flesh. They're right before them. And the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, in Jesus. Now, if God were in the flesh standing right in front of you, would you come to him with a simple request for a personal pleasure? Or would you come to him in awe of his presence? And think about this, if he's standing there in your house, if, if his presence was right there, the, the flesh uh, the, of God right there in the flesh, would you say, oh, I need you to fix this? Or, oh, I have this problem. Or can you make this a little bit better? Or would you just be so enamored with his presence that you, that you worship, that you exalt him, that you love him, that your heart is so drawn to him? You see, many in the crowds today still come to Jesus. They press in, wanting to get a need met. Doesn't that seem so self-centered when you think about it? When you are in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, how can the focus be on personal provisions and not on, the, on his actual presence? How can it be that we become so self-centered that we would make coming to Jesus about us and not about him? As we, as we look at this, let's go into another time of prayer. So how do you come to Jesus today? I mean, let me ask you, do you long to dwell in his presence or do you simply want his provision? I'm mean, be honest with yourself. Have you been one of the crowd who came to Jesus, but over time your coming, your coming to him has fallen away? Maybe you did come to him for salvation. Maybe you did say a prayer. But if you're honest with yourself, you've been drifting away from him ever since. The, the proximity and the coming to him has ceased. Maybe you came to him because there, there was something you wanted him to fix in your life. And as that issue went away, so did your desire to be in his presence. Let's read Psalm 27.4 together. And let's make this our, uh, our prayer. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I mean, pray this verse right now. If you will just pause for 20 or 30 seconds and pray this verse from Psalm 27, reciting it to the Lord with a pure heart, declaring your desire to come to him all the days of your life. Ask him to, to be there in, in your midst. Ask him to, to be there so that you can dwell in his house. Will you, will you pause? Will you pray? Third thing is this, Jesus and the critics. All right, so let's keep reading. We're, we're going to jump down 3, 20 through 30. All right. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard, heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down, they came down to Jesus, right? They came down from Jerusalem, were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Let's keep reading verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So these critics are coming. These scribes who came were most likely an official delegation uh, of experts from Jerusalem coming to Galilee to observe and assess the ministry of Jesus. They wanted to see what he's really doing. They came with a critical spirit. They were skeptical of the truth. So they come and they're assuming that since Jesus is not adhering to their laws, that he must not be working for God. Well, he's not doing things the way we think he should be doing them. He's not doing them according to our customs and our laws and our principles. So he must not be from God. So that's what they're saying. Their assumption is that the law they have and they've made is equivalent to God's word. They have elevated their system of religious adherence and presence to a level of biblical truth. And since Jesus doesn't follow it, he must not be godly. Have you ever judged someone because they didn't follow the same rules you follow? Well, they must not be godly because they're not doing what I, asked, what I would do. And this is exactly what they're doing. They're, they're being critics of the truth. They're being critics of good. And then verse 27, Jesus says these words. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. This is one of the most hopeful passages in Scripture because Jesus is saying, I have invaded the house of the strong man, Satan, and I'm going to bind him. He's going to have no more power. This is what Jesus is saying. Look, I, I'm, not, I'm not working with Satan. I'm about to bind Satan by, by being the atoning sacrifice for people's sins. Jesus has come in the flesh to be the second Adam and to reverse the curse of sin. He has already withstood the temptation, and he will continue to live a a sinful life, a sinless life all the way to the cross so he can be the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus had to come. Jesus had to be sinless to overcome the strong man of sin. Jesus had to be sinless to be an atoning sacrifice. Jesus had to be born human to die, but Jesus also had to be God in the flesh to be sinless. Because all humanity is born sinful, but Jesus and his divine nature reveals that he is sinless. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. I love how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God knew what he was doing. He sent his son Jesus in the flesh, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He came in the flesh. He came like us, but the fullness of God dwelt in him, right? So that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. Jesus came born under the law. He came born under the flesh, but lived the sinless life so that he could redeem all of us who have fallen short under the law. Hebrews says this in 4, 15 and 16. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to have temptations in his life. Yet he was sinless. He was without sin so that he could overthrow the strong man of sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let me remind you, Jesus is inviting those crippled by sin to come to him because he understands what it's like to be in the flesh. Jesus is asking you to draw near, come to him, come to him with all of your weakness and receive mercy and find grace and love in your time of need. Jesus has overthrown the strong man. And then we, we read this in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now those are some scary verses. You, you ever do that thing where you say, hey, I got some good news and some bad news. Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? Well, I don't think Jesus asked. He just went in that order. He said, I'm going to give you the good news. Then I'm going to give you the bad news. So the good news is all sins will be forgiven for those in Christ. That's good news. That's great news. That's remarkable news. That's, that's better news than you could even think of. But Jesus says, but I got some bad news, right? And you're like, but that was such good news. Well, what's the bad news? The bad news is there is an unforgivable sin. It is when you have resisted the conviction of the Holy Spirit so decisively that God has forsaken you and you can no longer repent. You try to repent and you can't repent. You can't be genuinely sorry for your sin or turn away from it. That is a horrible, frightening situation to be in. Jesus is saying, look, I got some good news and some bad news. And the good news is all sins will be forgiven. But the bad news is, is if, you will, if you consistently resist the Holy Spirit, there's going to be no repentance in your life. And without repentance, there's not salvation. So the issue here is how do you come to Jesus? You, you can claim to know Jesus and the work of Jesus, but if you are consistently ignoring the Holy Spirit and the precious conviction he gives to lead you to repentance, you are rejecting salvation and forgiveness. It doesn't matter how close in proximity you are. It doesn't matter if you say, oh, I know all the facts. I know all the statistics about Jesus. I've been around him my entire life. If you are consistently saying no to the Holy Spirit and his conviction in your life that is telling you to repent, you're saying, I don't want salvation and I don't want forgiveness. Those are, those are some harsh words, but they're true. So many are deceived and say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus but still say, I believe my sin is okay. Are, are, you, are you serious? Your proximity to Jesus doesn't always attribute to a personal relationship with Jesus. Just because you know God, just because you say you know Jesus, if you're rejecting the Holy Spirit, you can't say, well, I choose this part of God and this part of God, but I don't want this part of God. It doesn't work that way. Just because you're close in proximity doesn't mean that you're living out a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, I want you to get this. This, this is basically what Jesus is saying. If you reject conviction and the work of the Spirit and accept sin rather than repent of sin, then you are inadvertently rejecting him as Lord in your heart, no matter what you say with your words. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you know what the right words are to say. 
If you are consistently rejecting the Spirit, you're rejecting Jesus. So, another prayer prompt, our third and final prayer prompt of the morning. I want you to take a moment and ask God to take an inventory of your heart. This this is where you ask him to come and reveal whether or not your words of declaration match up with a heart of adoration. Are, Are the words that you say that you follow Jesus, that you love Jesus, do they match your heart for Jesus? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Is is the Spirit evident in your heart through the conviction of sins? And are you walking in an attitude of repentance? These are some deep questions. I want you to take some time here and think about. Read this psalm with me. Psalms 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. I want you to know, you're saying, I want you to search me, God, and I want you to tell me if I'm grieving you in any way with a hard heart. Search my heart, oh God. Will you, will you take a moment, will you pray those words? Will you pray these words that are written in scripture? God, search me, know me, reveal to me if there's areas of my life and my heart that don't match up with the words that I'm saying. Will you pause? Will you pray? lastly, Jesus and the church. So we're going to read verses 20 and 21 and then jump down to 31 through 35. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came, they came to Jesus in proximity and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Isn't it remarkable that the two groups that should have known him best the ones closest to God's words, these, these scribes, these Pharisees, and the ones that were closest to him physically, his very own family, are the ones who are furthest from him spiritually. I want you to, I want you to understand this. The proximity didn't matter. It was how they came to him. The people who knew God's word the best and the people who knew Jesus the best were, at the end of this chapter, the people who were the furthest from him. Because proximity to the church doesn't always attribute to a personal relationship with Jesus. Just because you go to church or, or don't go to church or watch church on TV doesn't mean that you're walking in a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, we've, we've all had conversations with people where they, oh, I go to church. Oh, yeah, I know God. But is there a real personal relationship taking place in your life? Because proximity to the church knowing these things, that they don't always attribute to a personal relationship with Jesus. 
You see, Jesus here, he takes this moment and Jesus recognizes the ones who truly know him. He emphasizes the real community of faith. Jesus emphasizes the family of God and Jesus urges us to recognize the extreme beauty and mystery of the faith family. I don't know about you, but I miss gathering together as a faith family. I miss gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ and singing songs of praise together and reading God's word together. I miss that. And it grieves me to be away from that. And Jesus recognized the beauty of it as well, that there are those that are his real followers who have come to him for personal relationships with him. Do you recognize the beauty and the mystery of the church? Do you recognize beauty of Jesus calling us his family? The church is the family of God who has come to him, not just in proximity, but personally. Let me, let me show you how, how mysterious and how beautiful this really is, that Jesus would call you his brother and his sister in Christ. Jesus would call you family. God in the flesh joins us in, in the body. He says, I am the head of the church. And he says, I love you. You are my family. Look at this, Hebrews 2, 11 through 12. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. So Jesus sanctifies and those who are sanctified us all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Let me tell you something. If you are crippled by sin right now and you're coming to him into the faith family, he is not ashamed to call you his brother. That's, that's beautiful and that's a beautiful mystery. And it goes on to saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. You see, Jesus told us, of the Father while he was in the flesh and sang songs of praise with the church, the, the brothers, right? The disciples while he was here in the flesh. So let's enjoy the church while we are in the flesh. The church comes to Jesus beautifully and corporately. I'm so looking forward to, to the day when we can all be together again under one roof, under one house, all singing songs of praise and just seeing the mystery that we're all family. Now, my question to you is, how do you come to Jesus? Have you come to him in such a way that you are his brother and his sister? Or have you just been in proximity of Jesus your entire life? Right now, I plead with you to come to Jesus. Come to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Confess your sins to him. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of the sins that are in your life and follow him all the days of your life. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons 